0: Let's turn in our Bibles together to the book of Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5 can be found in these black Bibles around you on page 1003. The plan was last week that I would give you the message titled in your bulletin, The Marks of Maturity. But in God's providence, he had other plans for me, that I would be in the hospital as we get to enter our new baby boy into the earth and be with my wife and new son. So I didn't make it here last week, and sometimes you start to wonder, why? Why that time and that way and this manner? And I think we can never know all of the reasons, and I think we've seen some of them as I shared downstairs about the opportunities the Lord has given, even this last week, to talk about our wonderful church and make much of Jesus uh, through the testimony that we've given to the nurses. But I think there's another reason, and one that I thought about was marks of maturity. And you know what I did this whole last week? Sit in the intensive care unit, looking at my son, and hearing updates about his lack of maturity. And it just was like this constant meditation on everything that I was preparing to preach for this last Sunday, and all I kept thinking was, Lord, are you trying to teach me something? For the passage that we're about to read this morning talks about children drinking milk like babies and how they need to grow up and become men and women who eat solid food. The passage talks about how we want to be maturing and growing and taking active steps in our faith so that way we become more and more like Jesus. And so there I sat day after day and seeing right in front of me an illustration of what we're about to hear. So let's read this passage and hopefully the Lord has laid on my heart a fresh illustration to all of us of what this means. Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 11, we'll read through chapter 6, verse 3. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, an instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And This we will do if God permits. Marks of maturity. I have four of them. Mark number one, a mature Christian grows in their knowledge of Christ. Mark number one, a mature Christian will grow in their knowledge of Jesus Christ. In chapter 5, verse 12 or verse 11. It says, about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain. And notice the language here, since you have become dull of hearing. The language of have become means that there was a time when these Christians that he's writing to were not dull of hearing, but that as time progressed, they entered into a new phase of life where they were dull of hearing. They started out strong, But as time went on, they grew weary and tired. And the literal word here is they grew sluggish, sluggish in the ear. Now, we need to remember, as we've alluded to many times in the past, the context of these people who are dull of hearing, sluggish in the ear, are people who have endured, as chapter 10, verse 32 says, a hard struggle because they have what likely seems, converted from Judaism as a Jewish person and heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, received that gospel, and in part received great suffering as a result. At the end of chapter 10, he says, so then you need endurance. And that's really the theme of this whole book. The writer of the Hebrews is writing to these Christians who were former Jews more than likely and saying, you need endurance through this suffering. But he also points out here in chapter 5, verse 11, that they have grown tired, weary, sluggish, slow to understand. Imagine being a Jew your whole life, responding to faith in Jesus, and then getting thrown in prison. Or your best friend getting thrown in prison. Or your family members being thrown in prison. Or maybe your house gets robbed simply for believing in Jesus. I mean, how do you think you would respond if that happened to you tomorrow? Well, it seems like the author knows them and knows that they have responded with fatigue. Fatigue of hearing the message of the gospel. Slowness of ear to believe with faith that Jesus is everything. Sounds very similar to what we already have looked at in chapter 2, verse 1. You might remember the language, Therefore, pay closer attention, very close attention to what you've heard. Notice the language of hearing and Paying attention to and how they are not doing such a good job. In fact, he says, You're careful, you need to be careful unless you drift away. It seems, in fact, that many of them have drifted away. They've moved back from where they were. So I think the first thing we need to realize is that we should be growing forward in our progress as Christians as we learn from here what the marks of maturity are. You need to realize that this morning you are either taking steps forward in growth as a Christian, in your knowledge of who Jesus is, or you are losing ground and you are growing dull, slow to understand. There's no middle ground, there's no coasting. You're either drifting against, or you're drifting with the stream, or you're rowing and fighting and swimming against it. Look at chapter 5, verse 14 again. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment. And then here's the language I want you to see trained by constant practice. Do you see here what's supposed to be happening? Growth in the Christian life and in their knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus should be ever increasing every single day, every year, every month, moving further into maturity. He uses the language of constant practice. It's the word of athletic training here when you see the word practice. So some translations in front of you might even say constant training. I can remember a couple years ago I was very busy, wasn't able to work out as much. I normally play basketball as a form of exercise. And it had gone months, and that's a long time for me of not playing basketball. It's normally a, a weekly, multiple times a week sort of habit or routine for me. So I've gone months without doing anything, really. No running, no exercising. We were just swamped with moving and different things. And I remember in my mind thinking, I'm still fine. I'm young. I'm healthy. I'm going to just hit the gym, and I'm going to be just like I used to be, not dropping a step. And man, was it pitiful. I was so out of breath. I remember at one point, I was running one direction, and I was trying to stop and move the other direction, and it was like my body was telling you, I'm not working anymore, and I just kind of froze. I was like, I'm trying to push off, but I had no muscle left. It's like I had exerted all of it. See, friends, this is a good example of this athletic training that if you're not keeping up with it every day, you're going to grow fatigued. You're going to atrophy in your muscles. It took several more weeks to get back into shape. That's the image that he's giving here. Your spiritual lives are much the same. You are either getting faster, stronger, and more skilled, or you're growing slower, weaker, and unskilled because of lazy sluggishness. So I want to ask you, how might you compare where you're at today spiritually in your maturity from one year ago today? Can you think of last summer? How was your hunger for God's Word? Has it increased in any way? How about your knowledge of theology and growing into the depths of who Jesus is? Have you gained any instruction that has been beneficial? Have you matured? Look back one year, five years. Are you making progress? All through this week, what have I been doing but answering the requests from many of you and friends and family? How's baby John doing? And what have I been saying? He's doing well because he's making progress every day. It's slow, and he's got a long way to go. We're going to be in the hospital for the next several weeks visiting our son. But the good thing is that he's making progress. He's a baby. He needs milk. And he's not a mature baby, so that milk has to be fed to him through a feeding tube. They have to give him air pressure to help him breathe through his nose. And his heart rate just randomly drops for about five or six seconds. And could be a bit scary, but the nurses do such an excellent job saying this is very normal for premature babies. See, I think there's just so many lessons I was able to learn as I sat in that hospital. Praise God that John is doing well. But if I didn't have those nurses helping me understand the phases of the premature life of a child, I think we would just be in panic mode all the time. You see the heart rate go from 160 to 40. You're like, oh dear, is he going to make it? This is very normal. He'll just come right back and will be fine. See, if this doesn't increase in his progress, if these heart rate drops happen more and more and more, he's going to stay in the hospital until they stop. If he doesn't get rid of the feeding tube and start eating milk on his own through his mouth, well, then he's going to stay in the hospital. He needs to make progress for us to bring him home. And so I'm sitting there thinking, yes, this is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying. There needs to be a constant training of the Word of God, a constant growth that we don't become dull and sluggish. We need to grow every day. Milk is okay if you're a baby, but not if you've been a Christian for 20 years. You need solid food. The basics are fine if you're new to the faith, and some of you that might be you. Maybe you just need milk, the basics. We all need to grow teeth before we start eating meat. But in four years from now, you shouldn't be eating meat still, or drinking milk. So I want you to think about this. Where are you at now? Are you in a pattern of swimming against the current or coasting, drifting, One easy way for you to know if you're constantly growing is to demonstrate the second mark of maturity. The first mark is that we pursue growing in our knowledge of Christ constantly. The second mark of maturity is that mature Christians will grow in their discipleship. Look at verse 12 of chapter 5. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk. Not solid food. I want to key in on this phrase. You should be teachers by now. Enough time has passed, and he's looking at this group of people and he's saying, You shouldn't be babies anymore. You should be teaching other people. And it could be confusing to some of you. Well, uh, he's probably just talking to the pastors. No, I think he's here talking to the entire congregation. We need to understand that in the New Testament, throughout the understanding of the church, the entire church is responsible to make disciples and teach people the faith. This is not just the thing that's given to pastors or a few selected men in the church that they're the only teachers and we just sit, consume, absorb, go home, do no teaching of our own. Friends, we need to realize in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, the job of a pastor or an elder, of an evangelist, of anyone that's given a title of ministry, especially of teaching, they are to equip the saints of the work of the ministry so that the whole church is built up and that the whole church would then speak together the truth of God's Word in love. That's Ephesians 4. Romans 15 verse 14 says, Brothers, all of you, plural, not just elders. Brothers, I'm so happy about how you are filled with the knowledge of Christ and how you are able to instruct one another. Paul writes to a group of Christians in Rome, hasn't even met them as far as we can tell, but he hears about how the whole community of faith is instructing one another, and he's happy about this. Colossians chapter 3 verse 16 explicitly commands the entire church in Colossae, again, not just to the elders, but to the whole church, may the word of Christ dwell in you richly, so that you would teach and admonish one another. One of the things we need to remind each other of is that the church is a collection of sinful, ordinary, messed up people who God uses to preach his word to accomplish his purposes. Do you realize that God is always going to work through sinful, messed up, ordinary people? Because that's who we are. I don't know who you think you are, but that's who we are. Not many of us were of noble birth for Corinthians chapter 1 is going to say. He is always going to work in and through us and in spite of us. One of my favorite verses that captures this idea is in Acts chapter 4. When the early church is just getting started, in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were on their way in chapter 3 to the temple. And as they were on their way, they found a lame man that couldn't walk And then they healed him and said, hey, stretch out your hand. And this caused quite a ruckus because they healed a guy in front of all these people and then they started telling them about Jesus and then all of the Jewish leaders of the day were not happy about this uprising of Christianity. So they threw him in prison. And as they were discussing these things and the the description of what happens in chapter 4, verse 13, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, And they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. Some translations just say ordinary men, but that's the literal translation. Uneducated, common, fishermen types. They were astonished and recognized they must have been with Jesus. Isn't that interesting? The church that you and I are now sitting in originally got started from a group of ordinary, uneducated men. Not rabbis, not scholars, not people that you would think. Oh man, they just—they're really, really smart, and that's why they preached the gospel in all the synagogues. They were astonished that these guys were the fishermen, tax collector types. Some of you might be saying to yourself, "God just could never use me. I don't have anything to offer. I don't have gifts. I don't have talents. I'm just not smart enough." Oh, brothers and sisters, I hope this morning that you would find encouragement and be reminded that God loves to use the least likely people in this room and around the world because then God gets all the glory. Isn't this how he works? Let's put an impossible situation and then let's do the impossible. So that's what you, you're thinking. That's impossible. I just can't articulate things well. I'm not smart enough. I don't know these things. I'm so fearful and timid. Oh, brother and sister, know that Jesus wants to speak through you, and if you're not super smart or eloquent, then the power of the gospel will be displayed in spite of your unintelligence and ineloquence. By the way, when we were reading through the Scriptures, could any of you follow along and read? Like, you have the ability to read English and the Bible's in front of you. I just wanted to point that out because if that's you, you're already probably a lot smarter than all the disciples in the early church. Many of them couldn't even read. I think sometimes we just get this idea that they were these supermen, super apostles. They had some sort of magic power of teaching or that they, were, they had the same gospel you and I have. So don't put your hope in your eloquence, your smarts, your education. Friends, the only thing that converts and changes, conforms people to the image of Christ is the word of God and the power of the gospel. So be encouraged today. God wants to use you, yes, even you, to disciple the people that are around you. Specifically, I'd like to draw our attention to the men in this room. Men, are you the kind of man who wants to lead your family in prayer? Lead them to read the word of God. And friend, if that's all you do, I think the Lord could use that mightily. Just open the word, read it, and pray with your wife, your children, your family. I'm not telling you to get out a, a theological dictionary and parse Greek verbs and all these sort of strange things that you don't even know what I'm talking about. No, just open up God's Word, read through books of the Bible together with your spouse. Pray with them. Men, do we want to be those kind of disciplers in this room? We ought to be teachers at this point. Some of you, you need to hear that rebuke this morning. What, might you should, have, what should have you been doing maybe these last five, six, seven years of your marriage? I would encourage you to take that. Teach diligently your children. Sit in the house. When you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up, teach them. Teach them God's word. Women, have any of you come from a background that has so overemphasized male domineering leadership that you now feel like, oh, discipleship's not for me? Oh, women, I would just encourage you to read Luke chapter 10 all over again. See the way Mary has chosen the better portion, sitting at the feet of Jesus as a disciple. Notice the way Martha's serving diligently all around the house and saying, Jesus, don't you see? Mary needs to get up and do what I should be doing, serving. Women aren't supposed to sit at the feet of rabbis and teachers and learn. That's inappropriate in our context. And he flipped that whole world upside down and said, no, no, she has chosen the better portion. Women, is that you this morning? Have you chosen the better portion of discipleship and realized that God wants to use, yes, even you? I hope and pray that all of us would see that as a church, we should collectively work together to disciple one another and the world around us. Some of us have been Christians for far too long, and we need to be making more disciples. We ought to be teachers, he says. One of the goals the elders of this church has is that all of you would have at the bare minimum the basic understanding of the gospel so you could teach that to others. So some of you who are members, you'll remember that when we did membership interviews, we asked, what's the gospel? Tell us, what does it mean to be a Christian? This is kind of like a basic thing that if you can't do this, we might wonder, are you even a Christian? Not just because you got the words wrong or this or that, but like you don't know how to explain what it means to be a Christian. Friends, this is basic. This is milk. This is easy abc type things so friend i would encourage all of you get four big ideas in your head about what the basics of our faith are who god is what the bible says about man what the bible says about jesus and how we then come to faith in him if you could get just those four basic abc's of our faith this would be a good place to start and i would challenge all of you to think through do you know that god is good Could you explain and open up the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, and take someone through the the character of God and the way he created man and made man in his image? Could you then show them in Genesis 3 that man, even though made in God's image, rebelled against God, sinned, fell short of God's glory, and because of that we've been under a curse of judgment. But praise be to God he did not leave us under the curse. Praise be to God that he sent Jesus Christ into the world, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, Fulfilled every letter of the law. Those 10 commandments that Steve read for us at the beginning of the service, he did every single one of them without fail for 33 years of his life. And because of calling himself the Messiah, the Son of God, he was crucified. He was put on a cross, was killed, murdered. Then he was resurrected from the dead three days later, ascended into heaven. And now, if you and I would repent of our sins and put our trust in Jesus, we would be saved. Friends, that's the gospel. Can you do that in a short manner with your coworker in between a work break, lunch break? Take them out to lunch and say, "Hey, there's something I want to share with you, just real quickly. This is my pastor told me to do this, so I got to do it." (laughs) Friends, I would encourage all of us to consider where are we at in this discipleship process. Maybe some of you even remember in our discipleship classes for our Embassy Essentials, I talked about four E's. All of you in this room, you're you're in one of these categories. You are either E, not a Christian here. You do not believe the gospel I just proclaimed. You're not trusting in it. You're not believing in it. You're not hoping in it. So therefore, you need to be evangelized. We want to convert you this morning. That might sound a bit in your face, but that's just the truth. We think that would be the best thing for anyone in this room that doesn't know Jesus. If you've become a Christian, then second E is you need to be established in the basics of the faith. That's what I think we see here hey, you need to be established back into the basics again. What's wrong with it? You've become sluggish in your understanding. The third E that we talk about is equipping people that after they got the basics, will disciple people. So learn basic marks of spiritual maturity like we're talking now. Understand the gospel and how to share it to other people. Read the Bible regularly. Get disciplines of prayer and meeting together with other people and equipping you in your faith. And the last E is export. Once you get to a certain point, you should now be taking people and helping them do that, and then you're exporting them out around the world for the sake of Christ's name among the nations. So where do you think you're at? Are you a non-Christian? A newer Christian? Do you need equipped? Or should you, with all the skills and gifts and knowledge God's given you, should you be exporting people? Friends, I'd ask you to consider whether or not you are mature in your teaching and discipleship. Let's go to the third mark of maturity this morning. We've seen that mature Christians grow in their knowledge of Christ, that they grow in discipleship, and thirdly, we see that Christians grow in their character or discernment. In chapter 5, verse 14, I think he takes an interesting twist and turn here. In verse 14, he says, "...but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil." We know from verse 11 that he says we have much more to say about this, and the this he's talking about is Jesus being in the order of Melchizedek. We'll get back to that in a second, but the point is is that he's talking about doctrine, about teachings of who Jesus is in verse 11. But by the time we get to verse 14, we see that this conversation about maturity is not merely head knowledge or doctrinal teachings. It shifts to trained to have discernment, and distinguishing good from evil. So you could call it your character or your ethics. You can live your life because of the knowledge that you've gained and be able to make good decisions about what would be right or wrong. So if you think that mature Christians are simply the people that know their Bibles really well, then your definition of maturity does not match God's Word. There are two traps I think we often get in as Christians. One trap is that we fall under the thinking that maturity is simply that. Reading books, going to Bible studies, attending conferences and seminars, and listening to podcast sermons until our ears fall out. But friends, the Bible warns us that there's a knowledge that puffs us up and makes us proud. God hates pride, right? If you're so smart about the Bible, realize God hates pride, especially people who are proud about their Bible knowledge. Or how about 1 Corinthians 13, 2? You could know all the mysteries of the world, but if you do not have love, you have nothing. All that Bible knowledge means zip if it doesn't increase your love for God and other people. So friends, that means we need to pursue the world around us to love them and care for them. It means we need to love one another, that if this doctrine and head knowledge about who Jesus is is not flowing down to our heart and spilling out into our lives, then it is doing us no good at all. That's a trap that many of us fall in. I've met scores of Christians that think that it's just about gaining more knowledge of the Bible at the expense of their character. Let's be a church that pursues not just hearing God's Word, but being doers of it also. But that's not the only thing that sometimes happens. Sometimes we go to the other extreme where it's all about social justice and good deeds and loving one another. And so then we intentionally dumb down God's Word and its teaching and say, well, we can't give that to people. They're not going to come to our church if we kind of go through the Bible like that. Let's do just topical teachings or let's do things that, you know, whatever itches they might have, let's scratch those. Friends, we do want to be a church that pursues love and good deeds, is consumed with a a love for those who are hurting and lost. But this should never be a reason for us to water down the teaching in our discipleship, whether it's the teaching up front in the pulpit or in our community groups or in our one-on-one discipleship. I think we should be constantly pursuing one another to grow in our knowledge and discernment and character and love for God and love for one another. Have you ever noticed the way the Bible puts together the Word of God and your growth as a Christian, growth in your character. Say, for example, Jesus is praying in John chapter 17, and he prays, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. How do we get sanctified? That's growing as a more Christ-like follower. Well, by the word of God. Psalm 119 says, how does a young man keep his way pure? Young men, is it hard to keep your way pure? Will guard yourself according to the word of God. How are we transformed from one degree of glory to another? Do you want does that sound good? Anybody? Takers? I would like to be transformed day after day from one degree of glory to another. That sounds fantastic. Well, that's by beholding the glory of Christ as held out in the scriptures. 2 Corinthians 3:18. And that's actually, in fact, what the writer of Hebrews is doing. The entire book, is he not? He is holding out the glories of Jesus Christ so that the readers and the hearers of this book would be transformed, would hold fast, would believe, would persevere, would have endurance. He's hoping that these doctrinal truths will have an impact on who they are in their character and in their ethical decisions. In fact, look back down at chapter 5, verse 11 again. About this, we have much to say. About what we have much to say? Well, about Jesus being the great priest-king in the order of Melchizedek. He has much more to say about the glories of how Jesus falls in the line of a quite obscure figure in the Old Testament. I guarantee you that most of us in this room, if we never had the book of Hebrews in the Bible, and you read your Old Testament, you would have zero idea about the significance of Melchizedek we just be so over our heads. He's in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, for like two verses. He's there, and then he's gone. Maybe like a whole chapter's devoted to him in Hebrews chapter 7. He's like, I want to get to these things, but you're slow. You're sluggish. You're not getting it. I want to pour out to you the glories of who Jesus is. Why? Because they need endurance and hope. And encouragement in the face of suffering and trials. He's concerned that some of them might listen to strange teaching. Go to chapter 13, verse 9, not necessarily now, but he just says, beware of the strange teachings about food and ceremonial laws, which again is part of the reason why many people think that the temptation is that they might return back to their Jewish faith and give up Jesus altogether. That seems like a very possible interpretation of really the whole book of Hebrews. He's telling them, no, no, don't go back to the Jewish faith. Hold fast to Jesus. Don't mix Christianity and Judaism together. Just Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. Why would you go back to Jesus, or back to the Old Testament, if you have Jesus? He's been doing that again and again and again. So fix your eyes on Jesus. See him pay more careful attention to him. He's the one greater than the angels. He's the one that you should consider because he's greater than Moses. Moses was a good and faithful servant of God, but Jesus, Jesus was faithful as God's son. He is better than Moses. The promised land for the nation of Israel was a temporary, physical resting place from slavery and a place of protection from their enemies. But he tells them, don't look to that rest in the promised land of Israel. Instead, Put your faith in Jesus because he has now offered a permanent and a spiritual rest from sin and death. Look to Jesus. He is the final high priest passing through the heavens, sitting at the right hand of God in heaven. So draw near to him. He offers you a throne of grace so you can come to him because of his once and forever sacrifice. Jesus is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and he wants to go on and tell them more about Melchizedek because... He's afraid they might throw Jesus away altogether and go back to Judaism? Well, that makes no sense whatsoever if you understand Judaism, if you understand your Old Testament rightly. And so that's why I think he's saying here, you need to be taught again Judaism, the basic principles of the oracles of God. That phrase, when used throughout the New Testament, almost always is referring specifically to the Old Testament teaching. So you need to be taught the Old Testament again. What a claim to make. You're not even getting the Old Testament. You guys think that you know it, but you don't. It was about Jesus all along. And that's what he's been pointing out in this book. He's telling them, look, it's like you've grown up as a man, and you're now saying, hey, guys, I've got an idea. I've heard some teaching the other day, and it's really good to go back to the baby milk that we had from our mother.'" This is just, no, that's strange. That's weird teachings. That's what he's saying in chapter 13. Don't listen to these strange teachings. Don't go back to the milk. You need solid food that is Christ-centered, not the Old Testament faith. If you go back to Judaism, that's being childish. Chapter 6, verse 2 says that the foundation has been laid. Look at chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from God, from dead works and faith toward God. And then he starts listing off what these elementary doctrines are. So repentance and faith and washings. You might have baptisms, but it's in plural, so it more than likely means ceremonial washings. Laying on of hands, which probably refers to them laying on of hands for animal sacrifices. Resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. All of these lists are a summary of basic doctrines, Jewish teachings. That foundation of those teachings has been laid. So you can't lay the foundation again. Don't go back. We're building on it and that building is Jesus Christ. It's like when he says in chapter 6 verse 1, let us leave the elementary doctrines. It's almost literally word for word, let us leave the ABCs. The word is the alphabet. Let's leave the... ABCs of the faith. So put the pictures together. Here you have a group of people that, as they become Christians, they receive fierce persecution. So maybe they're like, maybe this Christian thing's not a good idea. Let's go back to being a Jew. Being a Jew's not going to receive all of this persecution. He's like, that's not a possibility. You can't do that. If you do that, then you will not have salvation. And he tries to show them throughout this book why that's the case. And here, I believe he's saying the foundation of the Old Testament's been laid. We can't lay the foundation again. It's like telling a 12th grader, let's learn the ABCs all over again. That's foolishness. The ABCs were taught to you, so you would graduate from them and start learning grammar and putting sentences together and then logic and then writing paragraphs and then papers. That's the purpose. So don't go back to the ABCs when you have graduated on to Jesus Christ, the point of the Old Testament to begin with. How do we do this final and last mark of maturity? How do we leave the ABCs and move on to maturity as said in chapter 6, verse 1? Mature Christians, we said, grow in their knowledge of Christ. They grow in discipleship. They grow in their character. But lastly, mature Christians grow in relying upon God. In his grace. One little short phrase at the end of this section, chapter 6, verse 3, and this we will do if God permits. What? We will do what if God permits? We will leave the elementary doctrines of Christ, and we will go on to maturity. Do you realize that the way you will grow in maturity is not because of your power or your might or your devotion or your commitment or your discipline merely? Those things are necessary. All of us need to partake in the process of growing and maturing. You don't just sit around at home and just, okay, I pray, God, make me more mature. You engage in this process. But if you think that's the only way you will grow, just on your efforts, well, friends, you have missed the whole picture. You have been saved by grace through faith. This wasn't your doing. It was the work of God. No one will boast and get any glory for it. That's how you're saved. The Bible repeatedly tells us that the way we grow as Christians is by God's grace. Later in chapter 13, that same sentence I was referring to where he said, hey, be careful of these strange teachings. Instead, be strengthened by grace. Grace. The way we grow is by God's grace, by hearing and being reminded of the way God will be working in and through us, and it will not be our own efforts that make us mature. So if you want to grow, you want to be mature, you want to grow in your discipleship and your knowledge of Jesus Christ, the most important thing to do is to rely on Jesus to do that in and through you. Or in other words, using the Words of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 1. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. What would you tell a group of struggling Christians? Whether it's persecution, whether it's trials in their life, what would be encouraging to them? The writer of Hebrews is going to say again and again and again. Look at the cross of Jesus. He endured to the point of death. You guys haven't even endured to the point of shedding any blood. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. Look at the way he endured all the way to the cross. For the joy set before him. What joy? The joy of knowing that he would fulfill the Father's plan. The joy of knowing that on the other side of that plan would be the salvation of you and me. The joy of knowing that the whole world would be renewed one day because he has conquered death and Satan and sin once and for all. Friends, Rest in God's grace. There is a rest that still remains for all of us today because Jesus Christ has offered it by finishing all the work that we need, both the work of your salvation and your sanctification. So rest in him today. Rely on him. Put your trust in him. I plead with you in the same way the author has over and over again. It's because of Christ's work in and through us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to come this morning and give you thanks for Jesus Christ. I want to thank you that he has offered for us a death that has perfected for us our salvation. Lord, I thank you that you have given us a church where we can live out the call to mature in Christ, to disciple one another, to instruct one another in the basics and in the meaty things of God. I thank you, God, for blessing us with this time that you've given us this morning. I pray that each and every one of us would use what we've learned today and not be a cul-de-sac or a dead end, but rather we'd be a conduit to which you'd work in and through us. We'd be able to teach and instruct those around us for the glory of your great name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.